Hello everyone, it's Game Alone's time again and today I'm joined by investor and 5am club founder Dee Ludlow. I absolutely loved recording this episode with Dee. Um, he's such a fascinating individual, a very, very diverse knowledge of all things to do with investing. So we cover quite a lot in this episode from property to stocks and shares, traditional investing, cryptocurrency, even gold. Um, and because I'm a bit of a history buff, we even delve into a little bit of uh, economic history as well, which is pretty uh, pretty unique for the Game Alone's podcast. So look, if you love listening to this episode, please do go and um, share this to your stories. Take a screenshot, share it to your stories on Instagram, tag me and D in it. We'll share it about just really hoping that a lot of people get a lot of value out of this and obviously want to spread it to as many people as we possibly can. So without any further ado, here is my interview with the awesome D Ludlow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Game of Loans podcast. Today, we have a very special guest in the form of Dee Ludlow, flying in all the way from Dubai just to, to have this chat with me. I'm sure this is not the only reason he's, he's done that, but uh, Dee, how are you doing? You all right, mate? Good, mate. Yeah, ha- I'm happy to be here. Good, good. Now, um, for anyone that lives under a rock uh, and doesn't follow you or come across you on social media, um, give us a little bit of a rundown as to who you are and what you do. So uh, my name is Dee Ludlow. Um, I'm the founder of the 5am club. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. Um, I invest in many different things. Uh, I was predominantly investing in property um, until the, you know, the whole COVID thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of an all round investor who likes to see how far I can take the capital and, uh, and enjoy life. Uh, I like traveling. Um, that's why I'm here. So yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, obviously, I've been I've been avidly following your exploits in in Dubai. Um, it seems <laughs> as though a large proportion of the UK has kind of just decided to emigrate temporarily to Dubai. So that might be a good place to to kick off kick off yeah. with. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, that all, if this coronavirus pandemic happened ten or fifteen years ago, um, actually it probably would have been a hell of a lot worse because the likes of yourselves and others wouldn't have been able to go and continue working elsewhere or wouldn't be able mm. to travel there or and wouldn't be able to do what you do outside of a normal office environment. So talk, talk to me about that. How did that sort of come about and how how easy is it for you to continue conducting your day-to-day business when you're miles away? So um, I was here about, around two months ago um, with a few friends and it was something that been on the cards for a while about maybe coming at you for a couple of years um, and well, for one, I like the sun, <laughs> and two, <laughs> um, I think the expat communities in places like Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, I think it does a lot for you as an individual. Uh, like I was in Hong Kong, every time I go out there, um, a lot of his friends, people I meet within the expat community, they want to help you. So regardless of what you say, it's the first thing they say is, look, how can I help you? Um, you need to do this, this, and this. And I feel that you know, I like that environment, whereas I don't feel that we get that as much in the UK. Um, You know, people do help, you know, I'm not going to take it away from anyone, people do help, but I feel that the help is more in these communities. So um, I like the thought of that. Secondly, I have three um, daughters, so I want the education. I like the fact that they can go to a school. Um, Everyone's parents of the people in the school are there for a reason. They're either fairly successful in what they do, or they've made the leap for a reason. Obviously, I like the multicultural aspect of it all as well for my children. So it ticked all the boxes, to be fair, um, at the moment. And it was something that was on the cards. And then when I heard that we was going into another lockdown, 
I thought no better time than now to maybe move the business out there. Um, we're probably going to be in lockdown for at least half of this year, if not further lockdowns again. So I thought there's no better time ever than to try it. Yeah, no, it make, makes perfect sense. And as I was saying, with, with the technology that we have available to us now, you can run a successful business from pretty much anywhere, mm. anywhere in the world. Um, do you feel as though, um, I mean, I, I'm getting this at the moment because my business, Grand Union Finance, at the time of recording is only about seven months old and we're actually finding it quite difficult. There's three of us in the business at the moment and we're really struggling with the fact that we are all remote um, because the time that we're, that's taken out of our day communicating with one another is actually quite a lot when we compare it to just being in an office. Um, so do you find that because you're probably more established in what you're doing, um, that has also helped as well that the fact that you can kind of do it anywhere because the teething issues that you come up against when you're growing a business, when you're in that sort of growth stage are kind of behind you? Yeah, I also think that it works both ways. I think that working remotely has helped a lot of businesses save time, but also on the other side, some businesses have made it harder because if you're in like a good office environment where everyone bounces off each other, um, people lose that sort of motivation when, you know, even though you don't realize it, sometimes people rely on um, that sort of environment. Um, so I think that would be harder. But then for people who's more solo, I think it helps because they're more remote. Zoom calls are only had if needed. Whereas if you're sort of just in the office on a normal day to day, people you end up doing quite a lot of pointless meetings that can be done on the phone or on Zoom. Um, but yeah, I think it works both ways. It all depends on the individual. But I think that people like, especially like yourself, you could you can work remotely, even though you have a team and it's nice to be around the team. Um, working remotely, I think if someone's not doing it already, I think that it's quite essential that people try and do something that takes their business online if you can, um, more than now more than ever. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think it's, um, I mean, I, I'm a, I like my little phrases and one, one I've been using a lot during lockdown is um, in, ev in every adversity, there's opportunity. And I think whenever there's a, whenever a problem arises, um, a lot of people see that as a massive negative, but actually I see it as a huge opportunity to be able to actually improve what you're doing. And so for us at the moment, this communication issue, we are, we're, we're as busy as, as, as I've ever been as a broker in 14 years of doing what I do. And so that in itself is a problem that needs solving. And with us all being remote, it's even harder. But what it does do is it's amazing the emails that we have bouncing back and forth with ideas on streamlining things, even silly things like I've just discovered Calendly. So, you know, it's just the most amazing thing in the world to just save that little bit of time in terms of organizing your day. Um, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Embracing technology, finding uh, ways to be more efficient and run your, your business better and problems you know arising allows for that to take place yeah i think you know for one you look too young to be doing this for 14 years <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you just for men sponsors of this episode <laughs> and um uh, secondly um yeah like you said there is always always an opportunity in a crisis you know you adapt improvise overcome um it's quite easily in situations like especially covid to sort of roll over um, and not do anything but I think that like you said the quicker you find the solution to the problem and like there is always great opportunities and in, in, you know this is where people grow in, in times like this so yeah it's just looking for those areas that you can grow in yeah love that little uh, little nugget there um, 
So, I mean, look, I, one of the main reasons that uh, I, I find a lot of your, your online content pretty fascinating is it surrounds a lot to do with the, the 5am club. Um, I mean, I'm one of the, the millions of people all over the world that's, um, that's read The Miracle Morning, which obviously is a massive advocate of this philosophy of getting up early, getting some extra um, hours in, into the day. Um, to, to, uh, I'm interested to find out how this idea came about. Was it, was it just yours or was it, did, you, did you sort of throw this off of other people? Did it grow organically or was it like a specified, right, we're going to start this club because we think that we could be in charge of a, of a real kind of movement here? So... I've never said this before, but I've actually never read the book. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, it's, it's all so, right. It's, it's, it's pretty much get up early. Get up early. Yeah, do yeah. Stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so the way it come around was when lockdown first happened, I did start getting really comfortable and I'm all about stay outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, you know, I, lo I love Tim Ferriss and he, he sort of says, you know, even if you're just trying something new as a food or drink, do something that takes you out of your comfort zone every day. So I was sort of in that routine and then I found myself getting very comfortable, waking up later than usual. And I was like, this isn't good because I was stuck in the house. Um, so I called like two or three friends and said, look, let's just jump on a call at 5 a.m. Four's too early, six is a bit like normal. Let's jump on a call at five and let's just talk about business, see if we can help each other and what we're all doing. And as you know, on social media, people started sharing it on Instagram, started getting more on the call. And then um, when it got to like 15 to 20 on the call, it started to get hard to um, free flowing conversation. So we started asking people on the call, look, do you want to do a little presentation on what you do? And then it just went from there. And when it got bigger and bigger, it started taking a lot more time up. And my friend was like, look, mate, you need to monetize this. You have a great community that want to learn. You're providing great sort of value from your speakers. Why don't you just monetize it, spend more time on it and take it to the next level? And that's sort of how it happened, really. And I did get a bit of backlash from a few education companies um, when it was monetized that, you know, you're, you're charging like too cheap for this education. I'm like, look, people are only giving what they want to give. You know, they're speakers. I just want them to come and talk about what they're doing. And if they can give value, that's great. And I feel that it's a nice place, especially if people want to get started, to come and access material at a very like low barrier to entry instead of paying sort of like your 10, 20 grand for knowledge on one certain thing when they can come here and they can learn about everything and yeah. have some base knowledge on anything. Like, you know, this this stuff on the portal that, you know, if you want to learn about gold, if you want to learn about Bitcoin, property, NLP, whatever you want to learn about, there's some information on it. And I think that it's quite important that people get that chance. You know, we can all go out on YouTube and most stuff is on YouTube to be fair, but if you can try and consolidate it, put it in one place, they haven't got to try and search for what's good and what isn't, then yeah, that's sort of what it was all about. Yeah, no, it's, it is a great philosophy. And, um, and yeah, I, I love, I love that. It's funny how I, and I, and I've, I've kind of learned this. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of, of reading biographies and autobiographies of, mm -hmm. of like really successful people. And one key sort of thing that I seem to find is that you find in a lot of education, people, advocate the this whole you know you need to have a plan you need a strategy so many of the world's most successful people had no plan whatsoever um and and their ideas were born out of trying things something was successful so they just took it to the next level and then they figured out what the next level after that was going to be i mean i wouldn't necessarily say that having no plan whatsoever is a, is a good no. thing but the, i think that just highlights exactly what yeah. you've just done there is you kind of had an idea and it's turned into something great and you've and you've actually just jumped on onto that and then just put more effort into into growing it which i think is is awesome um yeah. 
But in terms of just the, the this whole philosophy of, of obviously the the Miracle Morning, which you haven't read, but it has that has this same kind of philosophy of you know get up early, you, you get to do more. Is that kind of where the, where this came from? Was you know you're doing these presentations early in the morning, they're done by six half six whenever whenever it is, um, and you then have the whole day again mm. to to still be doing. So you've done all this learning, but then you've still got the whole day to mm. to really crack on with your business. Yeah, 100%. And obviously, because I got three kids, it, I thought I need to be up earlier anyway. And then when I started to, you know, my dad was always an early riser. And um, and then when I did start waking up at that time, you do realize, you know, like you said, a six to half six is done. You've already sort of acquired some sort of informational knowledge, whether you already knew about it or not, you get, you know, you can, you still learn something. And then, yeah, literally I feel the days that I do because I don't wake up at 5 a.m every day but if the days I do wake up at 5 a.m I feel by midday I've got a whole day's work done and then I feel like wow I still got all this time left and you know to be fair I think that I know some people say you don't need to wake up at 5 a.m and look it's not for everyone right but I feel that it, when you do wake up those few hours earlier you are putting yourself ahead especially um for the working day now don't get me wrong some people work better at night but it's, you know, similar scenario, whichever works better for you. If you don't work better at night and you want to watch Netflix and have some time off, then I think early is better for you. But then if you are productive at night, then do what's best for you. You know, it's, it's, I think it's all down to the individual, but I definitely think that the mornings, it's just something about the mornings when you wake up early and things are done before nine o'clock and it's, it just feels so different. Yeah. So, yeah I Do you know, I, I used to, um, so n- number one, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. My evenings, I very much like to to spend watching Netflix with the missus, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, I, I won't lie. But, um, you know, I, I tend to do a lot of presentations at evenings at networking events and, and whatnot. So sometimes I, I have to, but I do try and sort of really bring my day to a close by 7pm as a maximum, um, unless I am doing these kind of presentations. So yeah, more morning time, the, the better for me. But it's, it is funny. I, so I used to do this thing back when I was employed. Um, I used to get, I was always the first into whatever, whatever office I've ever worked in, I was always the first in. Um, and what I used to try and do was, especially in, in my line of work, technically, I mean, I don't view it as this. I think it, we're giving advice, but a lot of companies, unfortunately, with mortgage brokers, they view it as you're, you're a sales team. Um, and so when you are a sales team, if you've got targets and you're competing against other people, um, any way of getting, you know, not one up, but getting ahead of the game is, is really important. So I actually came up with this idea of my pre 9am list. So the night before, and I still do this now, the night before I would draw up my list of like to do's for the day. But obviously, there are certain things you can't do outside of normal working hours. I can't call banks. A lot of the time I can't really call clients sometimes. Um, there's lots of stuff you can't do. So I would, I would go through that list and I'd say, right, which, what, which of these things could I do outside of normal working hours? Um, and then that would become like my pre 9am list. And it was stupid things, just like writing an email to update a client on something or, um, you know, doing some compliance work or you're doing some admin work, updating my software system with, with my notes and all that kind of crap. And it is this stupid little menial task, but they have to get done on it. And otherwise they clog up your day. And so, whereas I was watching some of my colleagues walk into the office at five to nine, or even sometimes nine o'clock on the dot, and then going to get a coffee, going for a wee, sitting down, opening up their emails, and they're not really doing anything till half past nine. As soon as nine o'clock hit on the dot, I was on the phone 
you know, and yeah. then I'm, I mean, I'm on the phone talking to lenders and clients all day. And then at six, I might, you know, spend then maybe like a half an hour, an hour um, going through some of the admin tasks that have come up out of that day and, and obviously writing that list for, for the next day. So, and it is, you're right. It's that sense of achievement. I get to nine o'clock and I'm like, I've already done like five things. This is, this <laughs> yeah. is awesome. And, it's, and it, it sets you off the day, right? A hundred percent. I think that being productive is something that people sometimes feel that they've been productive and they're not. And I used to be like, you know, it's because you're in front of your laptop and you go your workbook out, you feel that oh, I'm working. But if you worked out how many hours of the day you actually work without being distracted, um, it is, yeah, like it is hard. So I think that what you said there is, is, is a great, is a great analogy of what you can do. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny, actually, as well, because um, another, another great, great, great book for business owners um, is, is a book called The E-Myth Revisited. Uh, I don't know if you've read that, but if you haven't, honestly, it's, it's, it's definitely well worth a read. A bit dated, but all the, all the stuff's um, still relevant. Um, and one of the things they talk about in there, you talk about actually understanding what you do day to day. And actually, this little bit that I'm about to say comes from a, a Tim Ferriss book, which is how it's amazing how every job in the world can get done between nine and five. Um, uh, and the <laughs> amount of paper pushing that happens in offices is outrageous. But um, in the email, if they talk to you about actually trying to figure out um, different roles within the business. And the only way you can do that is to actually kind of keep note of your day-to-day workings. You know, what mm-hmm. tasks are you doing? And then categorizing those tasks into, um, into job roles. So was that, was that, task a sales task was it a marketing task was it an admin task Um, Mm. and you slowly start to actually build up um, positions within your company that you can potentially fill and outsource at some point in the future Um, but actually what it also does it makes you very very aware of all the time that you procrastinate throughout the day because you can't write down I I spent two hours procrastinating today that doesn't count as a task (laughs) no (laughs) yeah you're right so um, it's a it's a it's a really really for any business owners that are listening to this it is a it's a cracking um, I mean a lot of people are really busy at the moment so you have to try and find the, the time in the day to do it but in terms of just diarising what you're doing it, it's amazing and it really does like you say it, it it makes you figure out how much time during the day you're actually spending on work and actually what it does as well is it makes you realise that you might be working hard but if you work smarter you might even be able to work a shorter day and then you know go out onto the golf course or whatever in the afternoon or <laughs> go surfing in the morning, whatever you fancy doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that thing, I wanted to, obviously we've, we've, we've chatted a lot about the, the 5am club, which is a lot of the reason why I wanted to, to chat with you today, but I'm also really interested about, um, you know, what you actually do for a living in terms of, you mentioned property and you mentioned the investing and stuff like that. We've just gone through a pretty shite year to be quite honest with you for for various different reasons lots of opportunity there but um what have you kind of taken from last year that maybe is gonna is has changed your investing um strategy i suppose going into 2021 and beyond has it changed dramatically or um has it really just been a kind of a little deviation of that um, yeah, it's probably a slight deviation. You know, it's not that I don't want to invest in the same things I was investing in. It's just, um, I believe being aware, if you're aware, you don't become a victim. So it's just sort of looking at stuff from a more cautious point of view and thinking, you know, it's like, for instance, let's say using uh, mergers and acquisitions, for instance, right? There's going to be some companies that you'll be buying and some businesses you're buying that may not be here in five years. So you need to take 
they're more cautiously from that point of view. Do you want to buy something that won't be here in five years? If you're in property, for instance, you know, there's there's certain aspects of property you may not want to buy because it's a bit ropey and, and a bit uncertain times at the moment. So it's just looking at things from a different view and just being like, you know, the one thing that I think that people forget when it comes to investing is look, if you're investing in something, you should be looking at, especially if you're value investing at a long term. So this is just going to, this will become a speed bump on the journey, this whole COVID thing, probably a pretty big one, but you know, and things are changing a lot. So yeah, look from the way I've been investing now, I do think a lot of things are changing. Um, and you know, we're sort of in the fourth industrial revolution now, I think though. So I think that coming into this, you should definitely sort of realign and rebalance what you're doing. Um, but yeah, still continue to do what you're doing and what you believe in that, you know, if you look at, for instance, if you spoke to, you know, my dad's a financial advisor and we have these debates all the time, right? That obviously you can only pick certain things of which people can put their money. Now, if you do ask a financial advisor, like, where should I invest my money? They're going to show you charts from the eighties and from the eighties, we've had, huge growth and a huge boom. If you look pre-1980, it was a lot of flat, uh, the stock market was flat, but they're not going to show you that. So, you know, we go through these stages um, where things grow and things don't grow. And I just think that we need to, you know, let's rebalance things. Let's have a little look at what we're doing, where we think we're going, where's the best places to allocate your money or regardless of what you do. And that's all I've done really in the last 12 months. I've seen that we've moved more into a digital space. So it's like, you know, tech is, is is obviously an exponential growth so is population so we need to like look at where things are going and especially from a tech point of view tech's just eating everything so you know um, rather than invest in sort of i definitely was i did hold a lot of like sort of bank stocks um probably 18 months ago where now i i definitely don't want to own any of those just because <laughs> of the way things are going and I look at more stuff like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff like even e-gaming, bioscience, um, obviously blockchain. And the, 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 the way the world's going, um, I think that's where you need to rebalance portfolios. And obviously, I, I love people like Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett, for instance, he would say Bitcoin's rat poison. But a 90-year-old Warren Buffett does even need to take that chance. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's looking at the, all the, when it comes to investment, you know this yourself, it all depends what age you are. Just like when you take a mortgage, like you're gonna get different rates, different products available to you if you're 60 years old, if you're 21 years old, it's, it's just all down to age. And so when you have conversations with people, some people may not like what you're saying, but you could be at a different age. I think that's, age is everything. Yeah, it, it, I, I completely agree with you. And it's funny, because I've had a conversation, my, uh, my um brother-in-law works for Hargreaves Lansdowne so I'm quite lucky that um, he, he does a lot of analysis and all that kind of stuff but it is it, it's quite a it's, in, it's quite simplistic but it, need, it doesn't need to be any, any more than that is that basically kind of the earlier the earlier you are in your life the more risks you can take the more adventurous you can be because you can allow for those bumps in the road you know when you're 70 years old or 60 years old or even to be honest if you're in, in your sort of late 50s or mid 50s you need to start looking at rehashing your investment portfolio mm. to be a lot safer you know chucking all your money in, monies in like bonds and, and stuff like that mm. that really is, is relatively safe but it starts to become a lot more um uh i suppose it, your appetite for that's going to grow because you don't want to spend your entire life investing and then 
just by complete coincidence, the, the, the day you want to retire or you want to start drawing on a pension or whatever it might be, suddenly there's a massive market crash or, or some kind of natural disaster or, or the pandemic that we're currently you know, living through now occurs. And basically you, you end up losing it all just by complete coincidence. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's really, really good advice. So I think um, one thing I was gonna ask off the back of that is obviously you're talking about technologies. You mentioned um, blockchain. Bitcoin has seen this huge growth over the last last year. Um, and like you said, someone like Warren Buffett doesn't necessarily need to take the risk on something new like this. But, um, you know, mid, 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 mid 30s, um, I see myself moving on in life a little bit. I'm not 90 by any stretch of the imagination, but it has sort of made me think, you know, am, am I a little old for, for, for Bitcoin? Um, so from your point of view, you know, obviously there's a lot of people listening to this that probably will have at least have a peaked interest in it. Um, mm. has, has Bitcoin sort of seen its growth now and will it start stabilizing? And is it really in your point, of, in your uh, opinion, kind of really worth investing time and money in? Or is it kind of like, well, the, the ship has sailed there and, and the big growth has happened. It's probably better to look elsewhere. Well, Bitcoin, even though it's a phenomenal growth, especially over the last say three or four months, is actually, you know, it's the best performing asset class in the last 10 years. So this, yeah, before the last three or four months, people could have thought it's had slow growth. But if you, when you average it out over the last 10 years, it is the best performing asset class. I, I think that we're just getting started with Bitcoin. The reason why I think that is, for one, it, it's sim, it's, I wouldn't say it's like gold yet, but it's similar to gold. Like it doesn't get affected by negative rates. Um, economic fundamentals, you know, it's just a basic um, case of supply and demand. But I think that th this time we've seen all these huge institutions piling their capital into Bitcoin. Now, this has never happened before. One thing I don't like saying when it comes to investment is it's different this time because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that, that's, but at the same, but with this, we haven't seen this before. So when you're looking at um, massive hedge funds, What's going to happen here is you've seen something like Michael Saylor putting their cash reserves into Bitcoin, MicroStrategy's cash reserves into Bitcoin because he, he prefers Bitcoin over fiat, right? Now you're seeing hedge funds sort of to endorse it. Banks are already endorsing it. But what's happened here is usually the banks get a first chance at something. So they'll buy an asset first. And then by the time it comes to people like me and you, the big moves already happened. We'll still get some sort of growth out of it, but it's harder. This time has been the complete opposite. So retail investors have bought first and the banks are going to buy last. But the, the, the only thing that does worry me about Bitcoin and sort of the crypto space is, you know, Bitcoin hasn't even hit a one trillion market cap yet. So when you think of the Forex markets trading four trillion a day and you've got people that can move those markets, people can move this market quite easily because of the capital they have. Now, my biggest worry for Bitcoin is the fact that banks have the money to move the market. So, you know, they could be lining this all up for a big short or they could just be holding it. The one, some of the, um, the metrics I look at is the amount of Bitcoin being stored off exchanges. So it's at peak at the moment. So people are it's showing that people are just holding Bitcoin. They, they don't really want to trade Bitcoin. Um, so people do look at trading volumes and stuff, but there's a lot more like holders of Bitcoin or hodlers, however they want, whatever they want to say of Bitcoin. So um, I think we are just getting started. And the fact that, you know, gold as a, as a store of value, if you want to look at 
Bitcoin as digital gold, where I don't think it's really solidified its place as a store of value yet because it's so volatile. But if you look at um, gold as a store of value with a $10 trillion market cap and Bitcoin hasn't even hit $1 trillion yet, then as you can see, if that is the, the space it's going into, it's massive growth to come. I don't think we'll see anything less than $100,000 Bitcoin, to be fair. Um, I think we're definitely just getting started. But, you know, people were saying at 5K, they want to wait for a pullback. 10K, pullback. 20K, I want to see a pullback. 30K, you know, 40K Bitcoin now. And people are waiting for a sub 20K Bitcoin again. Look, it could happen. It could happen tomorrow, you know. But, you know, if, we, if you keep waiting for something, it's like Tesla. To be fair, I was on the fence with Tesla for a long time. I held Tesla at $200 before the stock split. And then because I was so uncertain, every time Elon tweeted, it was moving the market too much. I just didn't like it. I thought that, but this is back before this COVID stuff. And I was like, media is moving the market too much. And, um, you know, he goes on Joe Rogan's podcast, smokes smokes a spliff and they move the market. I don't like that type <laughs> of stuff. You know, it's, it's too uncertain for me. And um it was it's very much it's very much connected to him as an individual. So and it, yeah. as we know, individuals are volatile. And so yes, you don't want your stock connected to that, really. No. And, um, you know, and obviously, but now it's like all stocks are sort of connected to the media now, whereas, you know, basic like um, basic TA and stuff doesn't really exist. People's not really looking at earnings. The P ratio doesn't really matter anymore. Like, you know, well, Tesla's P ratio is over a thousand. It's just sort of basic fundamentals have changed now but yeah. the reason why i like sort of um the crypto space more than anything right now is for one obviously i feel that we're right at the start but the whole banking system i feel does need a reform you know the people at the top see it you know the imf they've called for Brit Bretton was 2.0 um the world economic forum is talking about um, a reshape and a reform of the financial system. So, you know, all like the sort of the, the people that matter are talking about it. You know, um, if you think about it, I, I posted something within the, we've got like a private 5M community Facebook group and I posted something in there this morning actually um, saying, you know, someone messaged me and said, if they can print trillions of dollars overnight, then why are we still paying tax? And these sort of questions, like, how, how, how can you answer them? You know, like, when you think of the, like, the Federal Reserve, like, it was created in, what, 1913? And they basically created Fed notes that were 40% backed by gold. And then in 1929, this basically led to excess borrowing. So bank loans was basically used for stock market bets. And then when the stock market crashed, it just destroyed the supply of money. So all the over-leveraging from the central banks. This isn't new. This has happened before. Mm. After, um, they've been in, in control with expansion and bus cycles for many years. And this could be nothing new. But when, when you look at sort of it from that level, the central banks now, the, the retail banks are there to um, basically be the middleman between us and the central bank. With the central bank digital currencies coming into play, like every global economy is working on one, it changes everything because now you can they can lend to you directly based on your situation and they can tax you directly. They could tax you different to somebody else. They could um, your interest rate could be different to somebody else's. They can do it directly, whereas before you just everyone's on the same interest rate. Um, you know the base rate is what everybody sort of goes off. And let's be fair most there's a load of European countries and negative rates we're, we're going to be in negative rates before long and it's funny when you look at like um, you know quite old economists has been in the game for a very long time 
say that we're never going to see negative rates and now it's becoming reality yeah. and there's um there's so many things I, I i talk a lot about especially like the european banking system's very flawed and the target two system and all the other things around the european banking system like italy's basically made up of non-performing loans and when you look at the whole banking system from a whole and the amount of qe that's being done worldwide it's sort of like what sort of intrinsic value does money have anymore you know like now we're not it's not backed by gold um it's just you know every fiat currency has a hundred percent failure rate average one lasts like 25 years global reserve currency is 100 failure rate and we're you know we're coming i think we are coming to the end of the financial system as we know it now the average person probably won't know much difference um because they're just probably going to get an app that they download an e-wallet and then you hold this e-wallet with a central bank um i think that they're probably going to use it to incentivize like a new universal basic income and potential um like health passports and stuff based off the back of covid yeah i think that is 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 a lot of us down towards control and tax automation mm. you know and it could be a good and a bad thing Joe, you know, it's, it's it's funny that you kind of you, i think what you're getting at a lot of that there is and as somebody that's done two history degrees i, I like looking back to learn about what's coming forward and um you know we are we are kind of repeating what's happened previously um i mean when you you think back to you know a few hundred years ago and you know just just different variations of coins were the only way in which money was transferred um and actually certain massive international economies like for example the, the spanish back in the 1600s and you know dominating the world they they completely died um because they felt that the best way of, of showing that they were rich was to hold huge reserves of cash which became very outdated very quickly and the likes of well, what was England, but now the UK and, and, you know, the Dutch markets, things like that. They were the first countries in the world to operate what is now known as a sort of a stock system and an exchange system. And um, we, you know, we can look back on that and potentially use that as a, as a blueprint for, uh, you know, what countries need to do moving forward, which is, you know, economies change and the way we view money changes. You know, you go back 20 years um, and most people use notes and coins. Now most people use use cards, and, and money is basically just kind of elect, electronic uh, um, signals sent around around the world. So um, it's those economies that really grasp and um, you know take on these these new ways of doing things. Um, which is you know again, I'm, I am a proud Englishman, um, or I should say. Uh, a proud a Briti proud Britain. Um, I, know, I know you know English, mate. So <laughs> no, I'm, proud. I'm, I'm from London originally, so I'm always thinking yeah. England. But yeah. um, I'm a proud I'm a proud um, Britain because I actually and I do genuinely believe that London is the is the financial capital of the world. But I also think it's because um, over the last few hundred years we've been pretty forward thinking in terms of our economic policy when you compare it to the rest of europe in particular and then you know parts of the rest of the world america that sort of thing um i mean it helps from a time zone perspective that we can trade with the whole world in a single 24-hour period I, I think that's a massive player but you know paris could have done that but uh, berlin could have done that and they didn't so you know we it's not just about that so I think what you're saying is, is absolutely true. We need to learn from the past. We need to move with the times. One thing I was going to ask you about the Bitcoin thing. Um, can you see a point where 
we actually buy stuff more in Bitcoin? Because I, I, I had a question come, I mean, the, a client wasn't saying to me, can I do it? He was just asking the question just as, as, as a conversation stimulator of whether I would accept my fee in Bitcoin. Um, mm. And I said, yeah, my fee is one Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, it sounds a lot less than, than pounds. Um, but, you know, could, could you could you see a time when that actually happens where people actually internationally buy using bitcoin as a currency um it's hard to say because if it becomes a store of value then maybe not um because let's say especially how volatile it is at the moment like let's say um you bought a coffee today in bitcoin and it cost you i don't know four pounds and then tomorrow that same coffee costs you 10 mm. you're gonna you're gonna want to trade in bitcoin now i think that there could be some global trade done in bitcoin um between nations um as far as um us personally i'm not sure like you know who knows we could see a bitcoin standard i i don't know maybe 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 not i think that the thing is with bitcoin it does rely on is someone a guy called raul powell talks about quite a lot about the network effect and you know that's what bitcoin has is, is that the advantage the fact it's already endorsed a network effect it's the same as money though like you were just talking about the history of money and you know when people was told they had to hand their coins in they could have notes and use paper money um, that was endorsed by society and is, is, is done as a medium exchange because we, as society, allowed it to happen. And so if the network affair happens again, and, you know, I do see a lot of people say it's not going to happen because it's Bitcoin. It's like, well, you know, it, it, we don't know because we wasn't around, but I, I'm sure people shared the same thoughts back then, handing in gold coins and silver coins for a bit of paper. Mm. <laughs> so I think potentially it could happen. I think it's too early to say. Um, but yeah, if it becomes a store of value, probably not. Um, yeah. But I do think it's quite early days at the moment to, to say what's going to happen with that. Yeah, I, I liked your um, your analogy as well about sort of Bitcoin or crypto being maybe like the sort of the, the new gold, if you like, and could potentially mm. move into that. Um, I mean, I know, you know, you've mentioned, I've seen you post a few things about investing in gold. And it's weird because I, like you, I'm part of a few different groups and we, we talk about various different things. Whenever gold comes up, People kind of go, mm, yeah. So, so what's that all about? It, that that's isn't that what my what my granddad was meant to be investing in? Um, but it is still relevant, isn't it? Um, I mean, I've got plans. That I want to try and try and um, buy a bit of gold this year, and um, because actually, it doesn't show any signs of stopping being a really good long term investment. This is the key with this kind of stuff, isn't it? It's the long term investment aspect to it, and the same will be with with Bitcoin potentially. You buy it now really what you want to do is you want to realize that profit in 50 years time not in not in 50 days time. yeah yeah well, i said goals more of well this, you could look at two ways as well as wealth preservation and pretty much a hedge against money printing policies like or an economic crisis that's what gold is usually used for so there's also a hedge against policy. inflation yeah, and it's also a hedge against inflation and deflation. If you want to, if you want serious growth and stuff, then gold probably isn't for somebody, you know, um, to try and get huge growth. Not saying I don't think that there's a, it has a massive upside. So I think it does, but um, I think it's more for somebody who wants to store wealth or store, uh, yeah, a store of value at the end of the day. Um, but I also think silver as well. I, I'm more bullish on silver than gold long term. You know. Silver is the second most used commodity in the world. The gold to silver ratio is massive. It, you know, I think that silver is so undervalued and to buy a coin for like what, 23, 24 quid for a silver coin at the moment, an ounce of silver is, is very cheap. So I, I think that both do have um, a place, I think, if you refuse to build sort of a diversified portfolio. But I think it all depends again on age, what you want to do. And 
you know, like you're not going to get no dividends off gold or silver. So it's like <laughs> if you're if you're looking for some sort of cash flow and asset or something, then um, or some fixed yield asset, and they're, they're probably not the place to put it. And also, I think that before people were sort of looked down upon for storing gold or silver in your home, it was like don't do don't store it there. It's not safe. Store it in Singapore, Switzerland, or a bank. Now, right now, with all this going on, they're probably the, the last places I want it. Because let's say I had all my gold and silver in Singapore or Switzerland, and I wanted to access it, but I can't fly there to get it, then who owns the gold and silver? Mm. And it's the same as in a bank. You know, if you want to put in a safety deposit box in a bank, I don't really trust banks at the moment either. So it's like, it, it becomes a place where it's a difficult decision because people don't like to store huge amounts of gold, cash, or anything else in their houses. Um, but it's the same as a ledger for Bitcoin. If you, if, you, if you store your Bitcoin or crypto in cold storage or in a hardware wallet, then where do you put that? So it, it is, it's sort of a, it's down to the individual. But yeah, I think that gold and silver definitely have a place in a diversified portfolio. But I think it depends what stage you're at and how much you want to allocate. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I've, I've only, I'm, I'm not very question and answer on, on these podcasts usually, but I think just because of all the stuff that we're, we're discussing, it's mm. just throwing questions up in my head that I'm just interested in your viewpoint mm. on. So yeah. if you, if you had, I don't know, let's say a hundred grand, um, and in terms of asset class, you were only allowed to put it into, into one, what, in terms of just like quick fire off the top of your head, what's, what's the thing that you're, you're thinking, yeah, do you know, it's going to go there? Either crypto or emerging markets. Yeah. So, sorry, go on. Um, so crypto, if you, if, you, if you want to look at growth and a safer option, obviously there's plenty of different cryptos you can put money into. I would just say put it in Bitcoin and Ether if I was going to allocate it just to crypto. If it was emerging markets, I'd look at um, probably India or Iran, somewhere like that, probably, if I was to put it all in. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, that when you talk about emerging markets, and you know, I have discussions with with clients all day long. And yeah, of course, I'm trying to help them raise financial property projects 97% of the time. But um, we do end up talking about their overall um, asset base a lot of the time because lenders like to see that for um, you know to give them more comfort in their in their borrowers situation. Um, and it's funny whenever we start whenever I start talking about emerging markets with with clients. It's, it's still incredible how much of a stigma is sort of attached to it of, do I really want to bank my future wealth on what India is doing or what Iran is doing or what um, even what, you know, China and, and the, the Middle East, the Far East are doing um, or Africa are doing. You know, we've seen so much growth in all of those areas over the last 50 years you know, and it doesn't show signs of stopping, um, but people are still seem to be more happy to put their money at home, if you like, when like a, I don't know, like a FTSE 100 tracker or something mm. like that, yeah. than they would be into emerging markets just because they see it as not foreign in the actual physical sense of the word, but the nature of what they do is is foreign to, to mm. or how they go about their daily lives is seen to be foreign to what we, is, what we do. So they feel it's hard to put their money there. Yeah, I think it's it's the same as if you go abroad, for instance. Like if you if you go to say Thailand today, the UK tells you to have vaccinations, but then the Thai people don't have the same vaccinations. So it's sort of because <laughs> it's what we it's because it's what we know. And I think that if you to me it all comes down to say that demographics and stuff. So India has a very young population endorsing blockchain technology. It has massive growth ahead of it. Um, same as Iran. 
and when you look at the, even the Middle East, like we're going into a lot of renewable energy now. Um, this is a massive topic going forward, especially climate change and all the other stuff. And the Middle East is the hottest place in the world. So who do you think is going to, um, where do you think that the solar farms are going to be put if we need a load of solar energy? It's the same as obviously oil, you know, like I don't want to go too deep into all the history and stuff, but there's a reason why America created the petrodollar, did the deal with Faisal um, because of the oil. And so, if you follow the money trail, you usually find the answer. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think as society, especially as like Brits and all same as Americans, Canadians, we all want to put in our own country because we trust it because it's what we know. And we look at countries like India and think they're not doing as good as us because we're the UK, we're America. But, <laughs> but you know, it, we thought the same thing about China, the slow growing giant. You know, and now China's digital currency is years ahead of us and it's probably the one thing that scares me the most because of their thoughts on stuff. Now, I think China's amazing. They've taken a lot, most of their country out of poverty in the last 20, 30 years. It's amazing what they've been doing, buying up all the world's gold, buying up all the US bonds. They own more of America than America. You know, it's, but uh, I think that um, their, their, their currency, their digital currency, they could quite easily steal global reserve currency status based on the fact they're already far ahead. Now, oil's use is becoming less and less. Um, so the petrodollar, how far is that going to go? How many people are going to sign Bretton Woods 2.0? Are there going to be the same nations involved? And then when you look at China, less, they have a massive presence in Africa and a massive presence in South America. If they start lending directly from their central bank digital currency and people in Africa and South America can download their e-wallet and then they think, well, this works. Why don't we go and let people in the UK do it? We've got a big presence in the UK. And then me and you start downloading um, the Chinese digital wallet and they lend to us directly. They're in a pretty strong position if they start doing that. Mm. And that, that it can be quite worrying based on the whole social credit score and the way they think of, of doing things. It's funny actually you say that. It's um, if, if people want to actually genuinely know kind of how the world, world works from a financial point of view, there's a really good... Um, case study I suppose in I was saying earlier about my, my love of reading about um uh, successful people one of my favorite books I read last year was Shoe Dog by um Phil Knight mm -hmm. the owner of Nike and Nike was funded by China <laughs> you know what a, what a book Amazing. A I mean I mean and if, and if you want to know what it's like to not have a plan and just basically <laughs> just every day just try and just drag yourself to success that that's a great story but but yeah. you know it, it, at, at the heart of that story it's one of an individual in America trying to build a brand and sell product essentially that was, you know, eventually bankrolled by a foreign country. You know, Nike really is seen as, you know, one of America's great companies wouldn't have happened um, if it didn't have any outside investment. Yeah. And I think as well, it's just because, like I said, we embrace our own society and it's the same as our income. You know, people are so concerned about their um, hourly rate changing one pound down or one pound up and they don't ever focus on the price of goods changing. Mm -hmm. So look, it doesn't matter how much you earn, it's how much you can get for the money. And people always forget about, they don't even look at the price of goods and the change of the price of goods. All they care about is what they earn. And if you look at our, our, the average income hasn't changed much since 2000, but the price of goods have. <laughs> uh, but people don't people we, we just embrace our society too much and we only do what we know and we forget about all the indicators that change on a day-to-day -day basis on a yearly basis and then we become complacent and that's why people end up in the situations they're in unfortunately because they wait until they're too old to take financial advice and by then it's too late 
it's funny you talk about the the, the price of goods. I'm so, this is going to make me sound like such an old man Brit. Um, the way I, I I think about the price of goods is how much does a pint of beer cost? Um, and if you think back, I mean, like I said, 36 years old now. So when I started going out uh, drinking when I was when I was a kid, you could still buy a pint in London for you know a pound fifty. And now you you don't even see that in you know most of the UK. So you look at the 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 increase in in the price of just that one product, um, well in excess of inflation. Um, just go just absolutely like you say, just goes to show that the irrelevance actually of of earnings. It's all just about what uh, what that money can get you nowadays. It's um yeah. it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's something that people should focus on a lot more. Like I said, people wait until they're too old to take financial advice, and by then, it's usually bad financial advice because there's nothing they can do for you mm. because you're too old. And it, you know, it's just sort of the cycle by the looks, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Dee, you know, I've, I've, um, I, I'm, I've loved this conversation so much just because, um, I, I love, I love talking about this kind of, kind of thing. Um, hopefully, what we've been jabbering about has been interesting for people that are actually listening. For me personally, <laughs> oh. I've got a ton out of this because I've enjoyed, it, I've enjoyed it massively. It makes a huge change from just talking about mortgages and bridging finance <laughs> all day long. Um, but uh, Dee, I, I really appreciate your time today, and, and genuinely, I could probably carry on talking to you for hours. Um, <laughs> So um, look, for, for those of you that are interested, um, those people that are listening, that are a little bit more interested in maybe even joining the 5am club or getting to know a little bit more about what you do and, and the advice that you give pretty freely in, in a lot of your posts online, what's the best way of them reaching out to you or following you online? So my IG is DWE underscore Ludlow. Um, the 5am club is join the 5am club.co.uk. You can find out about there. And we've got a private Facebook community where we just talk about different investments and share our opinions and that's called the 5am club community on facebook so any everyone's welcome to join um yeah usually ig is probably the best place most stuff that i'm doing is posted on there amazing i'll make sure i post all the links in the show notes so everyone can easily access all of that stuff um but i can't let you go without asking you uh, my favorite question <laughs> which is which you, you said off air that you were a big chocolate lover so i'm hoping for a, a good answer to this so um tell me d what's your favorite chocolate I haven't got one favorite chocolate to be fair. You're but, like you like me. <laughs> yeah, I love chocolate so much, so I haven't got my way. Um, you know, I like I like Dairy Milk and Galaxy, but I, I do like Ferrero Rochers too. So oh, I'm. Yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? I, I'm a, I'm a great fan. I, certain chocolate, yeah, okay, you can you can make you can chuck you can change it, and like for example, at the moment, Dairy Milk have got this uh, blueberry and white chocolate Dairy Milk, which is incredible. Um, so that's okay, but Ferrero Rochers don't fuck around with the Ferrero Rocher. No, no. <laughs> they tried. They've tried that. They've got one with like coconut on it, and they've got one with like white chocolate. No, 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 no. no. Ferrero Rochers are that staple. Like they ha- you can't yeah. you can't muck around with a Ferrero Rocher. That is that's the one. I agree. Totally agree. <laughs> uh, and do you know what as well? I don't know. I mean, obviously at the moment they're all shut, but you know when you go to those. Um, like um shake tastic and and all those kind of like um, milkshake places ferrero rocher milkshake yes unbelievable (laughs) (laughs) oh man i'm on a diet at the moment so whenever i do these podcast episodes and i'm talking to people about chocolate and milkshakes and all this i'm just like oh what am i doing to myself (laughs) not good at all but um d thank you so much again for coming on um your your knowledge has been absolutely invaluable and hopefully it's been a 
been a great episode for people listening on. So um, look, enjoy the sun, you bastards. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again yeah. very, very soon. Definitely. I appreciate the invite. I enjoyed it. Good stuff. Speak to you soon. Thanks, Dave. Cheers, mate. So there we have it, the end of another awesome Game of Loans podcast episode. But let me ask you a quick question. Did you enjoy the episode? If so, I would be so, so, so grateful if you could hop on your platform of choice and give me a five-star rating and even leave a little review. It just helps me get this podcast out to more and more people. And look, if you enjoyed it, maybe they they will too. One other little favor is if you like not just listening, but viewing your content, head over to my YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes but if you want to hop over there straight away you can just search my name sam norris the property investors broker and you will find the channel hope to see you over there soon cheers